Good afternoon and welcome to Stories in Public Health. I'm your host, Emily Dada, and I'd like to start today by welcoming our guest producer, Barney Krishnan, who was, who was one of the um, original um, people on the team setting up the podcast, but she's since left us to move to Melbourne with her fiancé. She's back for two weeks, so she's going to be sitting in on a couple of interviews, so welcome. Thank you. Um, and just some quick updates. Um, I realised um, today when I was listening back to some other interviews that there's been some updates in my situation since the podcast began. Uh, I was finishing my PhD at UNSW, but just for everyone's information, I'm now working at Macquarie University and I've handed in my PhD, which is very exciting. Um, and I've also just joined 2017. I've joined Twitter. Um, I'm still not great with it, but I'm going to be tweeting about the podcast, um, about upcoming interviews. Um, so if people have questions they'd like me to ask, um, feel free to tweet me about them. The, the handle, is that the right? The handle is at Amelie Dida, A-M-A-L-I-E-D-Y-D-A. Um, or if you have any suggestions for people that um, we should interview, please let us know. Uh, so today we're here at North Sydney um, at New South Wales Health, and I'm absolutely thrilled uh, to introduce Dr. Kerry Chant, the uh, Chief Health Officer for New South Wales. Thank you for joining us, Kerry. Well, thanks very much for the opportunity, and congratulations on getting your PhD. Thank in. you. <laughs> it was a big relief. All these people that say it's an anticlimax, they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I'll just start by giving a bit of background about you and then we'll dive into public health. Um, so as I mentioned, Kerry's the um, Chief Health Officer for New South Wales. She's a public health physician and she's previously been... I'm talking a bit fast, sorry guys, I'm a bit nervous, it's a big interview. Uh, previously uh, been the Director for Health Protection and the Deputy um, Chief Health Officer. She's also worked in a range of senior positions in uh, public health units, um, now local health areas are they? Local health districts. Local health districts um, in New South Wales. Um, and she was awarded the Public Service Medal uh, for Outstanding Public Service to Population Health in New South Wales in 2015. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and she has a few areas of interest, which I hope to touch on today. Uh, so maybe we could start um, with how you first got interested in public health. So you studied medicine as a doctor? So I studied medicine as a doctor. Um, I was um, enjoyed medicine, but I suppose I also sort of reflected on how um, we could do better at preventing illness, how um, there were issues around the same people coming back for care and how we could better provide that care to them. I also was always interested in health system and equity and so I was drawn to public health training which I think has um, led me on a path where I've been able to influence public policy in a positive way. Yeah, excellent. And what was your first sort of um, exposure to public health in that setting? Was it part of your, um, was there any sort of learning around that in medical school or was it once you were out working? It was probably when I was out working that I had the opportunity of joining a particular training program so I would want to acknowledge those leaders in public health that set up that training program and it was a rotational scheme so it allowed you to do some health systems planning it allowed you to work in actually hospital administration and it actually allowed you to work in communicable disease branch in a health protection um, role so you got the broad perspective broad of public perspective, health um, and, and I think and work in a regional public health unit as well. So I think it, it gave you a, a taste um, of things and that led me to um, be appointed as the director of the public health unit out at southwestern Sydney. And I'd like to acknowledge that a particular um, my boss out there, um, Professor Ian Webster, who was a drug and alcohol physician and a population health physician 
and who was very much an inspirational leader, um, particularly championing um, concepts of equity. Okay, and I might just jump around, sorry, I think Barney had a question. <laughs> I was just going to say, um, so that was through the, the Public Health Officer Training Program, It was, was a it? prelude to that, so there was a sort of a medical administration um, public health training program, and then that sort of folded and then reinvigorated as a public health um, medical training program. And I joined that as with a number of other um, trainees that are now holding senior positions. So it was a very effective um, Yeah, I was going to say program. a lot of amazing people have come out of that. It's a good program. So does that mean, um, is that for doctors only? So you, you must the, be a... The program I was involved in was for doctors, but we've actually, in New South Wales Health, have a great public health train, officer training program, which is for medical graduates and non-medical graduates. And we actually great. pride ourselves on the diversity of skills that we take into that program mm. and um, yeah no it's a great a great program it gives you the ability to um, have practical on the ground experience it requires a prerequisite of having an MPH first yeah but we are really attracted to people from many varied backgrounds yeah that's, that's excellent I have two questions that popped into my head just when you were talking um, the first was I don't know how relevant public health this is, but I'm just curious, when you were starting out in public health, were you, you're obviously the Chief Health Officer now, were you really career driven or has that just sort of happened organically that you've just gone from post to post um, and wanting, or wanting, wanting to make more of a difference? Um, look, I think it's interesting about whether your career is planned. I've been lucky to be in the right place at the right right time and I think work with really inspirational people. Yeah, health does that, that doesn't that it? That <laughs> um, really encouraged me um, to take that next step even when you've thought, am I ready for it? Yeah. So I think that's been my career. So it hasn't been so much of a planned, it's been a progression. I mean, I've obviously had a family in that time as well and I think um, that's always a sort of challenging dimension yeah. of, of juggling family with, with work. But I've always been passionate about what I do and I think when the time comes when I lose that passion is when I need to really walk away. Yeah. And I think uh, I mean, it's probably hard for people outside to understand how many passionate, bright, intelligent, motivated people we get to work with. So every day it's sort of a privilege. Yes, there are some bits of the job that I find challenging and annoying or frustrating, but it's actually very much a privilege and it's a great job to wake up every morning and think I want to go to work and I want to make a difference yeah that's exactly what keeps me um coming and yeah I actually used to work here I was telling Kerry before we started and I found the same thing just so many people that really want to make a difference and are passionate about what they do um I had a couple of questions but they've flown out of my head anything Barney I have to cut this bit out I was just um gonna sort of ask because you did touch on needing to have a family and um how that sometimes compromises sort of the career drive. And I guess what I wanted to know was, you know, as a woman, was it was it any different for you? Do you feel like public health has more females than males? Do you feel like there's any sort of um, dynamic like that within our industry? Look, I, I don't think I faced any of um, overt challenges in relation to being um, female. Um, as I said, I think I've had great leader, uh, the privilege to work for many great bosses. Mm. Um, I think it is always a challenge when you're jugg- juggling a family, and I would have to acknowledge a great mum and great family supports. Mm. Yeah, and it really mu- is very much a part 
partnership. Yeah. Um, my children do get very frustrated with me when I um, have a Pavlovian response to answering the phone and, and, and being on the phone <laughs> at, at odd times and odd things. Um, but also I would say that people have to take whatever journey suits them. You know, it's yeah. very hard to say... It's a very individual decision about what choices you make and yeah. what works for you, and it depends on family, it depends on um, your partner's commitment. So I wouldn't want to put pressure on people. I think it is a very much personal choice. And yeah. I would also say that people have time. Don't rush it either. Yeah, I think yeah. sometimes I've noticed that. Like, I'm 35 now, um, but, yeah, especially in my 20s, I was like, I have to have all this done by the time I'm 30 with all these yeah. deadlines. But it's, I think I'm learning it's ma- a marathon, not a sprint. Uh, so you mentioned something before about um, even though it is amazing to work here, some of the challenges. Would you mind touching on some of the challenges that you've had or some of the challenging things in this role? Well, I think um, you've often got to make just um, collect information, assimilate information, collect evidence very rapidly and make decisions and respond. Um, I think there um, we have to um, engage on some really challenging issues and sometimes health is a very personal yeah. um, issue. It can touches everyone and so it does require us to do our utmost to make sure we're minimising the harms. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think the responsibility is is quite can be quite um, stressful, and it's something we've got to take um, very. Um, I suppose the re- we are very responsible for something which is very de- near and dear and very important to people. So yeah. actually, um, with that comes some pressure. But as I said, the great thing in health is just the highly technical and highly competent team that we've got to actually yeah. support you so that you, we can be supported to make the best decisions. Yeah. How does politics play into it? Like, is it frustrating sometimes when, um, obviously, with politics in Australia, they're not always... Everyone has different views, but people might not come from a harm minimisation approach or there's policies that you want to put in place that you can't. How, how do you manage that? Well, I think that part of our role um, is to present the evidence in a very coherent way. Yeah. I think we're not here to advocate. We're here to put evidence, which yeah. will... Um, there may be... Op- governments may have different views about that, but yeah. there may be different opportunities. So I think there needs to be a degree of pragmatism. Yeah. Mm. Um, but maintaining that very strong focus on evidence and data... Yeah. Um, and working collaboratively across government agencies to achieve the best outcome and the best policy is where we need to be. You're a good choice for this job because you think really clearly and I just think really abstractly. (laughs) I'm just going on from that. So there's sort of, I think, with policy, um, there tends to be we kind of have media and the public almost as a stakeholder um, in that conversation, which can get quite challenging. And I know... um, from doing a little bit of research that you, you are often the person that has to respond, um, you know, in the media to when things go wrong, um, you know, incidences in hospitals. And I guess um, my question is sort of what role do you feel media plays in how, you know, health is portrayed? Because it is a personal thing. Um, and, you know, people get very passionate. The public gets quite um, passionate. They want action now. And sometimes that can cloud, um, you know, the evidence or 
or you know they could be demanding something that maybe there isn't evidence for. I mean, it's a tricky line and it's a tricky question. Sorry, <laughs> but um, yeah, just you know what you think the role media plays in sort of how we how we get good policy across the line because they tend to have quite a say. So I think um, contemporary public health or anyone in a senior position has to engage with the me- has to engage with the media. The media reflect um, the community views. Yeah. They're, a, they're an important way of communicating to the general public. public. We've got to make sure our messages are accessible yeah. and we've got to learn how to engage with people. I think it's often very difficult to engage when um, things are very heightened, you know, when people mm. yeah. are in a state of panic or, or where people have been polarised. Yeah. And so part of the challenge for us in public health is actually to have a long, play the long game, yeah. make sure we've got um, messages out there, information out there, and consistently engage with the community around complex issues because health is actually complex. Yeah. Many of the policies are complex ones. Yeah. And it's very important that we take all of the opportunities and I suppose one of the um, ways we do that is through proactive media. Right. Because when we're actually doing proactive media, we can actually get a little bit more nuanced discussion, we can reflect on the complexity, we can engage with other um, stakeholders um, to take the, um, the community on a, a journey. Yeah. And I think we need to get better at communication. Yeah, um, it's a difficult thing. And it's a difficult thing. Um, we have to get used to social media. And yeah, I was going to ask how it's changing. Well, I think the immediacy is, is there and the, the need for us to get ahead of the message and to be the coherent voice. However, it's pleasing also to see that the community is actually quite discerning about messages. And it's pleasing whenever we do um, surveys that New South Wales Health or some of the government-branded um, websites are actually seen by the community as up there. Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. And so some of that gives us confidence that the community is actually quite discerning of the informa- information, but we have to make it easier for them to write, to find that source of truth or um, a deta- more detailed analysis of the information. Hmm. Um, I have an easier question now. Um, <laughs> this is a, this is from one of the, our listeners. Um, what are you most proud of in your career to date? Has there been a big achievement, or just in general career? I'm most proud of. Um, I suppose I'm most proud of the team that I've got working for yeah. me. Yeah. Um, they're pretty inspirational bunch. Um, and you, you know, you've obviously worked with Jeremy, who's yeah. an absolute um, delight. Yes, <laughs> and on the podcast, <laughs> it's a little podcast. <laughs> um, I've got Joe Mitchell, who's um, particularly involved in our population programs, who are tackling some of the issues of tobacco, obesity, yeah. alcohol, and other drugs, um, and are leading some really important reform agendas. And and they're probably some examples of um, challenging issues that are going to take a long-term sustained effort. Um, yeah, so you need really talented, motivated people. That's correct. And I've got uh, many others that would fill this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> I might I might follow you up on that. <laughs> and do you think it's because you have like a shared vision that, that that team works so well? Like you're all on the same page in terms of 
look, I think you also have to have diversity of views mm. and mm. one of the strengths of the team is actually having people um, that have got a diverse range of views and a d- diverse range of perspectives. Yeah. And I think that actually strengthens it because you, um, it's, it's very dangerous to have people that won't confront you with different perspectives That's or true. challenge you. So yeah. um, I actually like having a quite... Um, always respectful but a very constructive um, debate. constructive <laughs> and fiery debate and passionate debate and and I really like people that bring passion to to what they do that's amazing I think there's definitely a lot of those here um, I've also um, I know you have an interest in indigenous health um, I was wondering if maybe you could talk about some of the work that's going on in the department now around I think that's a hugely important issue for Australian health um, some of the work or some of the highlights that you've worked on over the years so I suppose um, my approach to Aboriginal health is twofold, is I firmly believe everyone has a fundamental responsibility to um, attend to Aboriginal health and the, the incredible disparity in our, our health outcomes between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. So I do think that, as in Jeremy's area, they've done some great work on Aboriginal immunisation rates, and so Aboriginal immunisation rates are actually now um, above non-Aboriginal immunisation, and that's absolutely fantastic. Um, Similarly, we know the burden of some diseases are higher in Aboriginal um, people, and I think it's important that we put particular strategies in place for that. In relation to population health, we know tobacco smoking rates are still very high in Aboriginal communities, whilst we're seeing a decline in the general population rates of smoking. We need to make sure we are bringing along everyone as we achieve health health yeah. gains. And program areas have got to particularly signal out um, initiatives that are going to make that difference in Aboriginal um, populations. And we have to generate the evidence and work in partnership with Aboriginal com- community and particularly Aboriginal community controlled yeah. community. In, in understanding how to deliver those health outcomes for Aboriginal people. Mm-hmm. We're doing um, work on um, dental, some work with the post centre in relation to um, training programs for Aboriginal people, getting Aboriginal uh, dental therapists and dental technicians oh, that's trying excellent. to do workforce initiatives. We run our own ab- environmental health officer training program, Aboriginal um, environmental health oh, training wasn't program. Oh, that's yeah. great. Yeah, I saw that actually. Which is yeah. fantastic and we also do a great program called Aboriginal um, Housing for Health which is a great Oh program. yeah, I've met some of the people that work there. It's yeah. a great program. But, I, but again, it's sort of this thing that we have to make sure that all of the program areas, every time you want a policy, have a program, you actually have a potential, particular attention, attention to Aboriginal people because Aboriginal people have anywhere from two to tenfold increased risk compared to non-Aboriginal yeah. people for most areas. And so they should be um, being seen by our services more than non-Aboriginal people. And we need to make sure that they're getting the same outcomes as, as, Aboriginal, as non-Aboriginal people. We're doing some work also on cardiac care disparities, which is a major um, cause of the burden of disparity between yeah. Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. We also then need whilst also taking a systems approach by saying that every time you run a service you need to see how many Aboriginal people are coming through the door. Yeah. Um, it should be much greater than the population share because of that underlying health need. 
and we just need to make sure that they're attending and that they're coming back and the service is culturally safe for them to attend. But also we need to understand that we need a vibrant Aboriginal community controlled sector to give Aboriginal people um, choice in going to Aboriginal community controlled and accessing those services. We need good partnerships between our local health districts and Aboriginal community controlled and we need also general practice and primary health care networks to work effectively with Aboriginal community controlled. So that, that would be some of the sort of things that we're approaching. Just because I'm from Melbourne, mm-hmm. um, how do you think it differs across the state? Like, is there a conversation between states in terms of approaches with that? Like, um, generally, overall in population health? Is it quite a collaborative approach or is it a bit more sort of, you know, everyone's got a lot on their plate and are quite focused in on what their particular state needs? I think most states would be focused on things like tobacco. I mean, the major determinants of health and disparity, I think all of the states would be focused on that. I think from from state to state there are different opportunities and population health program areas have to take into advantage... Yeah, those things. Those yeah. things. And so you may want to all address the same same issues, but in essence, um, what opportunities present you may be, di- may be different. Yeah. yeah. But we've had, you know, a strong commitment to addressing childhood obesity. It's been a Premier's, Premier Baird's priority. Yeah. yeah. And Premier Berejiklian has um, continued to support those Premier's priorities. And that's been a very effective um, platform to get whole of government engagement. And we've also been very pleased with our partnership with general practice, the AMA, um, the broad range of health providers in terms of recognising the importance of that problem. Yeah. Excellent. Um, I'm just conscious of time because that was Viney's little... uh, Alarm going off for time. I have two more um, selfish questions, and then we might just. I didn't warn you about this before. I usually warn people. I usually try and wrap up with maybe a favourite book or something that's really inspired you or changed Mm. the way you've thought. Mm. Uh, But my two selfish questions are um, something that I asked you previously is that we're trying to develop an MPH program at Macquarie. And what would you really like to see students come out of an MPH if they were going to work for you? What are some of the the core competencies you'd want to come out? And the second question is. From a researcher's perspective, how can we work better with places like New South Wales Health to better affect change? So I see two skills that are really very important, and one is this understanding of how a health system is funded and operates, and also how. So that's an understanding of what the Commonwealth funds, what the state funds, yeah. um, what are the funding schemes issues around cost effectiveness, Mm -hmm. um, evidence, critical appraisal skills. So I think that's fundamental. Then I think it's important to have good data literacy skills. Um, But the sort of data skills I really need is that critical appraisal, the ability to understand health data and social data, Mm. and synthesise, synthesis skills, analysis skills. So they're the skills that I most value, mm-hmm. and I'm probably going to offend some of my people. That, <laughs> <laughs> but but that's the sort of growing area that, um, as we're doing good public policy, those foundational skills are very key. Okay, excellent. And then I think your second question was about researchers. Research. I think there's great benefit from researchers being much more closely closely aligned 
and working closely with policy makers. Yeah. Mm. And I think we've got some really good examples of areas where we do that incredibly well. And one of them is in the arena of HIV, and that's been a long um, partnership between the research sector, the affected community, and also New South Wales Health and our um, service providers. That allows really frank questions, it allows uh, research questions that are actually going to be translated into policy or service provision. And so the closer we can get that alignment, um, now that's notwithstanding that there will be some research which doesn't have to be as connected. You know, Mm. the more basic research has to be great ideas and um, inspirational, but as soon as you get more towards that uh, health services research or that translational research at the end of service provision, it's really important you understand the policy and program settings at both a Commonwealth and a state level and how you would implement something at scale. Mm -hmm. Too often we do small niche projects, prove evidence, but they will never be cost-effective at scale or implementable. That's really good advice. I think I'm probably even guilty of that at times, so I'm definitely going to keep that in mind in the future. Yeah, that's definitely my experience as well, like in terms of doing smaller projects or, you know, being very grant based particularly for NGOs and you know non-for-profits that are quite grant based they they I think because of the nature of that funding scheme I think by default think like that um maybe not necessarily out of choice but yeah that we'll try and spread the word in research (laughs) (laughs) and look I think um we some of the the role of the peaks for instance when you're talking about NGOs is for instance that that may be something that we can support capacity at a peak so that the NGOs are not having to replicate um, mm, we can actually yeah. collect longitudinal data through data linkage to get some yeah. outcomes data so I think we can actually do some research by by um, marrying some of the capacity um, either by through peaks and through peaks engaging with um, ministry, yeah. we can do some really innovative stuff, which is like cross-agency data linkage to inform outcomes of programs, which mean that we can do those evaluations very cost-effectively and then learn yeah. and do continuous quality Im- improvement processes. You're already doing a lot of that with Cheryl, is that right? That's right. So we have got a, um, a data linkage facility, and I think we're just looking at how we can um, embed that way of thinking in all our program areas and there's some work being done in drug and alcohol um, mm. program area to look at that and that's probably an area where it's so important to get things lined up. It's not just about um, the drug and alcohol medical intervention, it is mm. around the social intervention, it's about do people have access to housing, mm. um, do people have access to um, education and mm. employment opportunities and so we actually do need to think for some of the very challenging um, uh, issues, some what often people call wicked problems. We do need a whole of government approach and yeah. um, you know data linkage and standardised data collections and the way we share information across government agencies may well be pivotal to our putting in place good policies and programs. Yeah, I can definitely see that. So I, I'm feeling very inspired and I want to ask you a lot more questions, but I'm yeah, conscious no, of time. <laughs> so I'll throw one last one to Vani. Um, just going off from that, so I'm working um, in the Community Partnerships Unit at South East Sydney 
Um, and I, I think my question, I guess I'll be my selfish question, which will be um, what role do you think consumer engagement has? And do you think, I mean, from where I sit, I feel the model is moving towards that co-design approach and a big focus on um, making sure the community has input in sort of policies and projects that are about them. And I guess going off um, Emily's question about research is sort of just like what you think um, people in that field, in that area can do um, and what role you think community engagement really has in Look, the bigger scheme, yeah. I think it's absolutely essential and yeah. the community can actually hold government and researchers um, to account um, because it re- ultimately is about making services accessible, meeting yeah. the needs of people. And sometimes they're really practical, you know, the hours of operation. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're not going to have six visits, you know, can I do it um, by phone-based or can I receive my results over the phone? Yeah. What works for patients? Because in the end we want them to complete um, and act on the advice. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think co-design is just so essential. Yeah. I think we're often challenged about how do we do that and, yeah. you know, that's not... Um, it's sometimes hard because it is, it is the consum- the one consumer you have representative. So I, th- I think that there needs to be time spent on how um, you engage and do community consultation or engage with consumers. And it will differ depending on the problem you're trying to solve. But I strongly support that sort of co-design yeah. and that consumer-centred um, program delivery yeah I guess it's sort of I know, sorry really <laughs> I'm trying to it, wrap her up I know, but, um, you can cut me out but um, I guess it kind of comes back I, I find that sometimes when we're trying to focus on equity um, you know which is what we were talking about a bit before we started the podcast which is trying to make sure you're, you're understanding sort of the diversity of populations that within your group and um, I think sometimes consumers can bring that to light without the need for, you know, a huge focus on, you know, who are we missing out on. Sometimes you just need that consumer to say, oh, we haven't thought about this or we haven't thought about that group. Um, so it's very inspiring to hear from you that, you know, that's that's we're on the right track and that's sort of the direction that we want to go And we should also have a monitor who is attending our service and then compare that with who we would expect because we know generally the prevalence of disease or differentials in disease. Yeah. And so we should always be questioning, are we just getting the lower acuity people? Um, are we getting the full spectrum of the people that have the underlying disease? Yeah. And you know, I think one of the things we've got to be really attentive to is navigating our systems can sometimes be really challenging. And I think that equity focus is something we need to bring to bear con- yeah. continually. Thank you, Vani. Passionate as yeah, always. Just, <laughs> just uh, so just <laughs> one final question about perhaps a book that's inspired you or a movie or podcast. You can say this one if you like. <laughs> There's no pressure. We can cut this bit out. Um, I'm going to have to fess up that I actually... Um, I do a lot of reading because for my job necessitates lots yeah. of reading. So when I actually um, read for pleasure, I tend to read fairly light, um, sort of 
criminal sort of novel. Oh, that's okay. Do you like Jack Reacher? I like Jack Reacher. Jack Reacher and um, Daniel De Silva. I oh, I haven't him. read him. Yes, I'll have to good. look him up. He's very good. There's a new book coming out in July that I'm hanging out for. Well, you certainly set yourself apart. That's the first <laughs> fiction that we've had, I think, recommended. But I'm going to go and look up the second one. <laughs> Uh, thank you very much for your time today. It's just been amazing. I just feel very inspired. And also, thank you so much for your time. I know how busy you are. And also, thank you very much to Vani, all the way yeah, from Melbourne. I um, really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for your time. <laughs> really, it's like such a privilege to meet you. I mean, you never get to meet people at that high level and really ask. Well, it's a great initiative yeah. that you're running. So. Yeah. Thank you. And you got to have a bit of fangirling from us yeah, as well. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> all thank right, you. thank you, everyone. And we'll speak to you next time on Stories in Public Health. Thank you. Thanks so much.